Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 27th, 2021. It's... Um, it's early afternoon on the West Coast of the United States. It's actually the day after this, August the 28th in Australia and around the world. So I hope you're all having a happy, healthy, and above all else, peaceful morning or evening or lunchtime, wherever you are. Unfortunately, I wish the news was good, but the news is not about peace or happiness. It's about violence and misery. Um, the New York Times tell us that there is Grief and desperation in Kabul as Afghans pressed the guess out after this terrible uh, attack, this bomb attack uh, uh, in Afghanistan yesterday. Uh, according to the London Guardian, there's fear and fury in Kabul as thousands face being abandoned by the UK in the midst of this chaos. Uh, the Post told us earlier today that the death toll rose to 170. Uh, but the news is actually even worse than this. The violence has resulted, according to the Wall Street Journal, in 200 uh, dead people. Uh, all the analysts are, of course, out in the United States. Uh, the Afghan experience is and isn't being compared to Vietnam. Uh, one of the, the, Wall, the Washington Post pundits say it's not Saigon 75 in terms of the U.S., uh, retreat, but Beirut in 83 with more violence in, in the Lebanon, another uh, place of, uh, of terrible violence. Um, in the midst of this, we have the, the rise of new violent organizations, organizations built around the cult of violence, the Islamic State Khorasan, uh, otherwise known as ISIS-K, a lot of uh, a, a lot of uncertainty about this. Um, and admit the Afghan chaos, according to the New York Times. Again, the C word keeps on coming up. Afghan chaos. Uh, there's predictions that the CIA will remain in Afghanistan for years. They've been there for years uh, and they will stay there for years. Joe Biden, uh, perhaps not the most dynamic of American presidents, has has, has responded to the attacks saying that we will hunt you down. In other words, uh, violence begets more violence. Terrorist violence begets uh, state violence. Lots of critics of Biden. He doesn't seem to be making anyone happy. Uh, Robert Wright talking on the Ezra Klein show um, suggests that the answers for the horrors of war is always more war more violence, more suffering. Uh, lots of people to talk to about this. The traditional Washington pundits are fairly predictable. But rather than talking to a, a classic pundit, I decided to invite Steve uh, Kill-LA. Uh, he's an Australian former IT entrepreneur, made a lot of money, uh, and is the author uh, of a relatively new, uh, new book, Peace in the Age of Chaos, as well as the founder and organizer of the Institute for Economics and Peace. So Steve's a bit of a, a peace maven. He's in Sydney, Australia. It's Saturday morning there. 
Uh, Steve, what should we learn from this latest tragedy in Afghanistan in, in, in terms of our, uh, our, our struggle to eliminate violence, to build peace around the world? I think there's a number of things. The first is that we've really got to rethink how we go about creating peace. So there's all sorts of estimates of how much was spent in Afghanistan, but look at Brown University, they came up with one estimate, 2.2 trillion. That was just in Afghanistan by the US government. Doesn't take into account others, other countries, what they spent, nor what the US spent in Pakistan, nor a lot of the ongoing costs in the US. So, but even if you look at that $2.2 trillion, that's the equivalent of 100 times the annual salary of every person in Afghanistan. So like, so the average salary there is about $507 million. So this is a phenomenal amount of money. And what would have happened if you'd just over the 20 years given people five times for every Afghani, five times the average salary? Would have you got a better result? So what it shows is that sort of the options where it's mainly a military response and where the concepts of the aid is defined uh, by the conquering nation, in this case, the US, doesn't actually work. So, we so what you're saying, more. Steve, is that Joe Biden, uh, everyone seems to be criticizing Biden from both left and right. Biden is entirely wrong to respond to to violence by promising more violence, that that's the well, problem rather than the solution. Well, it, it, you need, so you need a military response when you're dealing with people like the Khashoggi chapter for, for the IS, for example. Like, and it's the same in the Sahil. Sahil's looking pretty terrible at the moment too in terms of Islamic terrorists. But you so say you need a military response. It's not that you don't need one, but what you need is you need it backed up by a whole lot of other things. Look, we just quite often don't understand peace. We don't understand sort of the, the way societies really operate. Uh, we can see it in, in terms of a lot of the issues within our own societies at the moment. So I'm I'll give you a personal story. This for me was profound. So as you mentioned, my background's in IT. I've set up two international IT companies. One ended up published on NASDAQ, the other on the Australian Stock Exchange. So I made quite a bit of money out of that set up a family foundation which works with the poorest of the poor. And it's done about 220 projects around the world now. And so that took me in a lot of war zones, near post war zones, and I was north east could do in the Congo, which is one of the more violent places in the world. And I wondered, what are the most peaceful nations in the world? Was there anything I could learn from them to bring to the projects I was doing? A fantasy question, nothing more than that. And so search the internet, couldn't find a list of the countries by their uh, peacefulness. And that's how the Global Peace Index was born. But that creates a profound question. Because a simple businessman like me can be walking through Africa and wonder what are the most peaceful nations in the world and hasn't been done, then how much do we know about peace? Right, and, and that's what your, your, your institute, Steve, does. Um, I've yeah. stolen a couple of your, your PowerPoints. Uh, from from your tw uh, 2021 report, surprise, surprise, Afghanistan is the least peaceful country in the world. I think it's even less peaceful now than it was when you made it. Afghanistan, uh, the, the, the bottom 10 are Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria, South Sudan, Iraq, Somalia, 
the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Libya, Central African Republic, and perhaps to some people's surprise, Russia. What generalizations can you make about these least, these 10 leastful, least peaceful countries in the world? What do they tell us? Well, I think, firstly, they're obviously they're all in conflict other than Russia. Okay, so it's the only exception on that. And it gets there because it's massive militarization and levels of violence internally. But the other thing they've got in common, which a lot of people don't realize, they've all got really bad ecological degradation. So, like, they've got the large increases in population. So, if you look at those countries, over probably over half of them will double their populations in the next 30 years. And so, they're already really short of resources for water and resources for food. And we think in a number of them, this goes back, this, this may go back 50, 100 years. So you've got this cycle, resource degradation, conflict, that conflict now degrades the resources more, and that now moves into this vicious Yeah, cycle. looking at it's your list, uh, Steve, uh, Syria in this hall of shame is the third most violent country uh, in the world. It reminded me of Thomas Friedman's piece from 2013, had quite a big impact in the New York Times, connecting the civil war in Syria to the, um, to the scarcity of water and water wars. What is the connection in your mind between today's environmental crisis and the crisis of violence around the world? Well, I think Afghanistan, well, we'll hit Afghanistan, seeing we're talking about that, but I'll hit Syria and Iraq also in a minute. But so if you look at Afghanistan, it's in the, we do an ecological threat index. And in that, Afghanistan has more threats than any other country in the world. So if we went back in 2019, we looked at two countries, the most conflicts over water, they were Syria and Iraq. So it creates this vicious cycle. So what happens is, you get resources get scarce, people then fight over the resources, but in the fighting, you now aggregate the resources further. That now then leads to more conflict. So you've got this vicious cycle going on. So that's one of one of the things we can see underlying it. Combined now, combined, so if you get resource degradation, it's fine. So look at Australia, we've got a lot of water, we get wild bushfires, heat waves. But the society is highly resilient. So what you also need combined uh, with this, let's say, your ecological issues, you also need very, very weak governance and also social, and also the social bonds within the, in the countries. So that's a concept called positive peace. So that's the attitude, institutions and structures which create and sustain peaceful societies. Those same things, those same things create the kind of conditions which we think are important for flourishing society, like higher per capita income, better performance on measures of ecology, better performance on measures of well-being mm. and inclusion, including gender. So many ways that you can, you can determine sort of the qualities which make for a thriving society. Yeah, and Steve, you've got the other, the other um, interesting, or oh, the, 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 the report, your 2021 report's full of really interesting uh, observations and statistics, um, but the other slide that I found particularly intriguing was the 10 most peaceful countries. Iceland being the most peaceful, New Zealand, Denmark, Portugal, Slovenia, Austria, Switzerland, Ireland, Czech Republic, and Canada. It all occurred to me that they all have 
shall we call it a, a, a social democratic culture and government and safety net? What comes first, that kind of safety net or peace? What leads to what? Well, this is the interesting thing, and uh, this can get quite philosophical, but I'll try and keep it simple. Uh, it's not one thing. It's a combination of a whole lot of things. So you've got to start to look at systemically. So what we've done is we've sort of looked at what creates for a thriving society, and we're breaking it down to an eight-part eight topology. We get to that through a mathematical model in statistical analysis, and we base it first off from the Global Peace Index. So it's not one thing. So it's things like well-functioning government, it's a strong business environment, it's a free flow of information. That can be epitomised by free press. It's acceptance of the rights of others, good relationships with neighbours. So if it's in Africa, it could be neighbouring tribes or neighbouring countries. High levels of human capital. It's a little bit more than a, a, a education per se, but high levels of human capital and the uh, equitable distribution of resources. And that doesn't mean equal, uh, to, but there's a social contract around most countries. It would be different in the US to Sweden, let's say. It's a social contract around what creates peace. I, I, I take all these points, Steve, and, and, and I'm sure you can, you, can, you, you can talk for hours on this, but let's look at the five most deteriorated countries in the world from your report from 2021. I'm sure Afghanistan would be in this now, but from when you wrote the report, it was Honduras, Burkina Faso, Belarus, uh, as Azerbaijan and, and Zambia. Uh, where should these countries start to build peace? What's a beginning? I think the beginning is back to this concept of positive peace. And sort of, so we'd, we'd, we'd start by looking at what are, the, what are the areas which the country is really weak in. So what, what we've found is that you, it's a way of being able to predict which country is going to have large falls in peace. So come back to this concept of positive peace. So where countries ranking on the global peace index is much higher than what their positive peace rating say it should be, over time they tend to fall down to, where, to, to what their levels of actual peace should be. And so using this as a technique, we can get, looking a decade ahead, we can get 70 to 90% depending on the size of the sample, the number of countries which can have a large deterioration in peace. So that's what all these countries would share in common. Afghanistan's already so low, it's hard for it to, the bottom, it's hard for it to have much more of a fall in peace. These countries were much higher than where they should have been, and so over time they fall. And if you look into all of them, uh, what you'd find is that there's a number of things which seem to go off. Corruption is a, one of the really big things associated with peace, and that's one of Yeah, we've had a number of shows on the danger of corruption. But again, in a funny way, um, the philosopher of all this is the English political uh, writer Thomas Hobbes, who, of course, warned us about the role of the state um, if we are to avoid a, a war of all against all. And yet, Russia's on this list of one of the 10 worst, most least peaceful countries in the world. They have a very strong state. Uh, and some of the, the states in, you know, Iceland doesn't have a strong state. So is there a connection between a strong state and either peace or violence? I think you need a, you need a, you need a, the state needs to be strong to a certain degree. So if it becomes authoritarian, it's different. 
So there's a very strong relationship between the uh, democracy and peace. There's also a very strong relationship between high per capita income and peace as well. And the things in many ways go together because the, if you think about what creates for a competitive environment, in many ways it's an open environment. But on the other hand, what you do need, you need a strong state which can provide security, can provide investment into the things which are needed, including a social, social security net, and it can provide the uh, background and the right rules and regulations so that you don't get anti-competitive environments in the business and the uh, people can flourish. So it's a, it, it, you need the strong state, but it's the it's what is what is it like? So if you look at China at the moment, so it's great progress over the last twenty years, but we can find now as President Xi starts to become more and more authoritarian, we're seeing things like a trillion dollars wiped off the. Uh, uh, stock exchanges in a matter of a couple of months, simply because they're passing laws to get control over the companies because they don't want them getting too powerful. It's all about the state. It's interesting that you, you've mentioned Russia in the top 10. You've suggested that China now is sliding. Um, and you also suggest in your latest report that um, North America in 2021 recorded the largest deterioration with the average level of peacefulness in the region falling by 1.8%. Uh, is the United States in the same hall of shame as Russia and perhaps China when it comes to this crisis of peace, Steve? No, I wouldn't, wouldn't say it's in the same same league, but it's well down the league table. So Why? What's going on in North America? Was it, is it particularly the United States or is it uh, Canada as well? I would guess Canada is more uh, in, the peaceful, in, the, in the most peaceful league. Yeah, well, look, it's a bit of an abnormality in North America because it only consists of the two countries. So you get a large drop in one, it can swing the other. So if we look back in the, uh, 2020, like that was a particularly pro problematic year for the US. Like you've had the the, the riots on Capitol Hill, you had a, a contested election, uh, you had a lot of riots over multiple different things, Black Lives Matter's movement for example. So all these have come into it. But if we come back to this concept of positive peace, and th th this is troubling in one way, the US has had the 10th largest drop in positive peace in the last decade. And you can, in many ways, it's a precursor of seeing what's playing out in US society today. That's the bad news. The good news is the US rate, ratings on positive peace are still high. It's still still really high. So it's up in about the 30s of the 160s. Uh, how, how does the increasing uh, ownership of guns play into it, as well as more military expenditure? Your Global Peace Index, your, your Twitter account, uh, observed that 2020 saw an increase in military expenditure as a percentage of GDP globally for the second straight year. U.S., of course, uh, spends more on 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 military uh, on, on on the military than than most of the countries in the world, perhaps with the exception of China and Russia put together. Yeah, so the, obviously the there's three things: internal safety and security, ongoing conflict, and militarization. They're the three domains we measure. So the availability of guns certainly plays into it. There's definitely no doubt. The more guns you have in a society, the higher the levels of homicide. Um, and also the higher just the accidents which happen with guns which injure people as well. So if we're looking at the US and its homicide rates, its homicide rates are high by 
Western Western the uh, dem democratic standards, but it's nothing like the levels which you'd see in Latin America or South America, where you can get up uh, to 20 per 100,000. US, it's about four per 100,000 from, from memory. So certainly the guns play into it. Now, should there be guns or shouldn't be guns? That's a debate for uh, yeah, the US to have, not for me. Steve, you've invested a large amount of your time, massive amounts of money, even though you're a successful entrepreneur in this. You, you speak uh, in the language of the entrepreneur. Uh, you, for example, you, um, you, you talk about can we put, or your institute talks about, can we put a price on peace? And, and, and your institute does. It says it costs $14 trillion a year. That's $5 a year for every person on the planet. Uh, and I take all that, but there must be more to it for you than that. Um, peace and violence isn't just about statistics and money. It's about human suffering, which can't be really quantified, can it, Steve? Yeah, look, this is right. We produce, if you bring it down to money, you can put it into a business argument. And money, in many ways, so yeah, 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 it moves the planet. And like it's just the way it is. So I think sort of the economic side of it's really important. But like the human suffering. Uh, so one of the projects which really, really moved me in the early days, we funded for about seven years a project for the rehabilitation of child soldiers in northern Uganda, which is captured by a group called the Lloyd's Resistance Army. And, like, the trauma these kids would go through was horrific, horrific. And like, like, this just moved me. The time just really moved me. Uh, like, these kids... Mainly boys, 80% of them are boys, 7 to 10 years they get captured. Quite often they murder 20% of the kids while taking them back to the camp where they captured them from. And they've, they've, any of them cried or was slow moving and they get the other kids to kill them uh, who they've just captured, horrific stuff. Then they force them to raid the villages they came from some, within the first year, forcing them to kill someone in the village, sometimes their own, sometimes their own parents. That had cut off an extrape group for them. Now, their family would be the Lord's Resistance Army. And like the kids, as they, some of them had escaped or get captured by the Ugandan army, and they go through this program we had. And like the trauma in them was horrific. And they're just so young, so young. And I think in many ways that was, the, that was one of the things which instilled me. But sort of for every one person you get dying on the battlefield, you get another person who just dies for through lack of food or lack of medical care as a result of conflict. And so the look at the number of refugees, we have record numbers of refugees, that's nearly all of it's through conflict. It's over 80, 80 million, I think it's 83 million on the last... Right, the, the global nature of this crisis is self-evident. Your, your analysis tends to do it on a... Your, your analysis of, of peace and violence is, tends to be based on a state-by-state -state level. Here we have a map of the best and the worst countries in the world. But of course, this is a global problem, as you suggested. One of the consequences of this latest tragic chapter in the Afghan story um, are more Afghan refugees. The BBC has a report out today about Afghans in Calais preparing to risk lives again to reach the UK. Uh, Turkey and Greece are now warning about a new influx of refugees. To what extent should we be thinking about the crisis of violence in the world, not on a state basis, but on a global basis, rather like the environment? 
Yeah, look, I think the two, if there's a nexus between conflict and environment degradation, which I talked about, or ecological degradation, which I spoke about earlier on. Horn of Africa and Sahel, the stage is particularly worrying. You've got a group of nations there which will double their population in the next 30 years. You've got a whole range of active uh, Islamic State uh, yeah, yeah, affiliates up there. One of the things about Afghanistan for the Islamists, a lot of these Islamist militias, it says to them, we can win. Okay, we can win. So we need to move into these areas with holistic responses. Part of it's military. A large part of it is the uh, developmental aid. Another part of it is actually building the societal structures. Another part is actually improving the governments. And this is where we failed in Afghanistan. This is where we failed in Iraq. And we really need new ways of being able to view it. And that's why I'll come back to this positive piece. It's transformational concept for viewing how we develop societies, including how to fix the US. So we looked within this, and we came back within the US, what are the things which are increasing in the US? They're things like group grievances, concept called fractionalized elites. That's where the elites within the society fight amongst themselves. You'll find that misinfo misinformation is on the rise. Also yeah, we haven't even talked about misinformation. The role of, do you, do you think that the role of social media and particularly networks like Facebook and YouTube, are they contributing to the latest uh, virus uh, pandemic of violence? I think the answer to that is yes and no. Okay, so you can I can you can see it in different states. I was up in the the with the Wenger about five years ago, seven years ago, and Facebook there is the locals up there. They were using it to put misinformation out around the various aid agents and stuff there. So there was a classic one. You could see it everywhere. But on the other hand, in many ways, it connects people in positive ways. So it's. It's two edge. It's like any tool. You can use it to cut yourself, or you can use it to cut your food. So social media is like that. The bigger question is why are people more attracted to misinformation now than let's say what they were twenty or thirty years ago? Yeah, we've had so many shows on that, uh, Steve. Yeah. At least one or two shows a week focuses on that. And of course, we've had many shows as well about COVID. No conversation these days is complete without COVID. You have uh, at your institute a take on COVID, economic recovery, um, and positive peace. What's the connection between uh, countries with high positive peace rates and successfully fighting COVID and vice versa, of course? Well, I think what happens is if you're looking at the positive peace, if you've got high positive peace, you've, the governments are better integrated, you've got stronger social security nets. So all that comes into a more robust health system because what health systems... Right. So it's, it's countries you mentioned like Czech Republic, Estonia, Germany, Lithuania, the Netherlands, Norway, Singapore, Slovenia and, and, and Switzerland, you say a best place for a post-COVID-19 recovery and they're all positive peace countries, right? They are, but they've also got quite strong economies as well. So that, that analysis, when well, we looked at the positive peace, but then too, we looked at the level of debt which countries had, which give an ability of them from to be able to finance their way out, out of the uh, of the COVID-induced recessions. But COVID certainly for the long term, because it's, it, it, things have advanced since then, like when we did that report, for example, you didn't have the Delta strain. So COVID's with us and it's going to be with us for a long while. 
and it looks like it's got the, going to have all sorts of effects on supply chains, for example, and have all sorts of effects on economies. You can see Latin America, it's struggling. It's, it's got high levels of debt, very hard for them to finance their way out of it. Let's say a country like the United States or Australia or those countries which we had on the screens earlier on. Australia it's, does well. Any coincidence with the fact, Steve, that you are there? Maybe... Uh... Maybe uh, maybe there's a connection between Steve Kill LA's Australian identity and his commitment to peace. New Zealand, I would guess, is one of even less violent country than Australia. Uh, Steve, your your book, Peace in the Age of Chaos, came out last year. The most the best solution for a sustainable future is an optimistic take on today's terrible news. People need to read that. Uh, how how would people get involved with your Institute for Economics and Peace? What If they are intrigued with what you're saying or what you're trying to do, how would you like them to connect with you? Well, there's various sorts of ways. Uh, you can get onto our mailing list. That, that, that's one simple way. We put a newsly, newsletter out each week called Future Trends, which looks at news stories and which will get pointing to where the future might go. That's one thing. We have uh, online academies, which you can do on Positive Peace. They're pretty simple, four hours, online tutorials. Get four hours, Steve? Yep, four hours, four to six hours, not, not too long. Do it in different modules. Each module takes sort of uh, somewhere around half an hour. So they could do that. We get some thousands of people a month going through doing that. We have, if you're more interested in stepping it up, we have what's termed ambassador programs. About 3,000 IEP ambassadors now, which sort of go out, get talks around what we're doing, uh, and from quite quite often set up various projects to do. That'd be another way you could get involved. But you can go to a, our website, Vision of Humanity, or org or economicsandpeace.org. Either way, we'll take you take you there. All sorts of things you can do. Well, it's great stuff what you're doing, Steve. I think, particularly in the context of today, uh, of, of this week's terrible news. Uh, as I said, if you if, for our viewers, particularly on LitHub, "Peace in the Age of Chaos" is is by Steve, uh, Steve Kill LA, appropriately named, I guess. Uh, uh, when I'm talking to you from San Francisco. Uh, uh, it's a good book, an interesting book, an interesting take on what he's trying to do. Steve, in addition, and in strange times, I know Australia's been in and out of the lockdown because of COVID. What else should people be reading, perhaps, to uh, improve the possibility of peace around the world? Perhaps a, a, a briefer fix, a simpler fix than your eight-hour seminars. Well, look, I think there's all sorts of things. I, like, look, one of the things I think is a lot of the time... Can I, look, peace starts with the individual. We really need to sort of come back and look at ourselves and sort of how do we become more peaceful? Well, there's simple things you can do for peace. It's like you're going into a, you're getting a takeaway coffee. Smile at the person on the other side of the counter. Just say something pleasant. Smile. That's a, that's a good, uh, I need to, to bear that in mind. Perhaps I need to something. smile more in my interviews. What about reading, Steve? What should people read? Uh, there's all sorts of things to read. And sort of, a, uh, you asked me earlier on. So I've got one book here which is a little bit different. It's a book about on the uh, Mahatma Gandhi, quotes by Mahatma Gandhi and the Dalai Lama. So the idea is you read one page a day. It takes about two minutes to read the things, but it's all on peace, and a lot of it's on sort of your personal peace as well. 
And so if you're interested in peace, it's a great way of just spending a year focusing on it. So I originally got given this book uh, yeah, yeah, by... Yeah, yeah, by Gandhi, yeah, so, so Mahatma Gandhi. So it's quotes from Gandhi. You read one quote a day and it makes you a more peaceful person. It's a form of meditation in a way, Steve, is it? Yeah, kind of blade of meditation, you could say that. Just gets you thinking. Well, Steve, uh, Kill L.A., the author of... Uh, peace in the age of chaos and the founder and I think the CEO of the Institute for Economics and Peace. Real pleasure to talk to you. Um, thrilled that, 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 that wealthy men like you are not just spending their monies on yachts and fast cars, but actually uh, trying to contribute to humanity. Thank you so much and best of luck with everything you're doing. Right. Okay. Thanks.